Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Life is full of awesome what-ifs, and some not so much, like unexpected medical costs. That's why United Healthcare provides Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans to supplement your primary plan and help manage out-of-pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. Greetings fellow time travellers, as always great to have you with me as we travel together through space and time. Before we get started today, let me pause for a moment and take stock of where we've travelled together. Uh, in the first series we touched down on the east coast of England about a million years ago. And over the next 100 episodes we travelled through history and explored some of the most extraordinary people, places and breathtakingly beautiful landscapes to be found in England, Scotland, Wales and Ireland. All of which are places that I love and certainly grew to love even more. Not content with putting all that British and Irish history into one single series, in the next we went one step further. This series is the history of the world in 100 episodes and the self-appointed remit, I know some people will say it's mad and impossible, but it's an attempt by me to try and make sense of this great, big, beautiful blue ball and how the lot of us, all of us homo sapiens, have made our marks and shaped it. So, no apologies, it's my story of the world. So series two began in Mesopotamia, in the magical city of Ur, something like 4,300 years ago, where we met a woman called Enheduanna, who is the first named writer in the world. Since that first episode, we've circumnavigated the globe, time-travelling past incredible moments in history, right up to where we are now, episode 59, where we're about to land in South America in the year 1545. So, to all my fellow time travellers, I'd like to say a huge thank you for joining me on this journey and staying with me. To help support the making of these podcasts, please sign up to my patreon.com site. It costs a bit of cash, not much, uh, but that cash gets you exclusive access to a weekly question and answer session and competitions and prizes and all sorts besides. Right now it's time to get back to the history of the world. Strap yourselves into the time machine, people, as we set off on the next stop in my love letter to the world. Recorder, microphone... Action. It's the 16th century and the two great powerhouses of international trade decide to split the world in two. Portugal takes everything east of a line running 370 degrees past Cape Verde and Spain takes everything to the west. In their new territories, Spanish conquistadors strike it lucky and find a fortune in gold and silver that flows out of the Americas back into Spain. And just when they thought things couldn't get any better, an entire mountain of silver is discovered. It becomes, though, a hell on earth for the indigenous people forced to extract the ore, but riches beyond the dreams of avarice for the Spanish. Endeavouring to understand history in hopes of illuminating the future, I'm Neil Oliver, and this is my love letter to the world. Hi Neil, 
In last week's episode, we followed the story of an incredible ingredient, the humble potato, that travelled from South America to Europe and helped change the world. Where are we this week? Hi, Paul. This week, it's 1545. Uh, We're staying in the Americas and touching down in what is now Bolivia. An indigenous man called Diego Gualpa, employed by the Spanish, has just discovered an entire mountain of silver. We're standing in the shadow of Mount Potosi. We're in South America. We're in Bolivia, really, I suppose. But we're we're shuttling back and forth across the Atlantic because it's about um, the connection that was established between the Americas and Europe as it developed in the second part of the 16th century. Uh, so it's fairly wide ranging. The the kind of the significant year in question is 1545, uh, but we'll come to that. If this one has a theme, it touches on something that I think a lot about in the in the modern era, which is money, the love of money being the root of all evil, as they do say, uh, and the way in which access to great wealth, the promise or the opportunity for wealth beyond the dreams of avarice, it's got an ugly side. In fact, you might say it's all ugly and always ugly. Uh, So in this instance, the source of wealth specifically is silver. But in many ways, as we know, and, and as we've seen in the last few years, when some people, when a narrow clique of people see directly ahead of them the possibility of fabulous wealth it's not good and it's never good for the for the wider population you know as some few gain many many more lose and many lose everything up to and including life itself uh but what we're, what we're talking about here is a mountain of silver and the consequences of its discovery but a bit of a reminder about significant and, and, and salient points. The Treaty of Tordesillas was signed in 1494. The Pope kind of oversaw the drawing of a line, literally, that separated Spain and Portugal, but, but not in the geographical sense or, or, or not in the way you might think. The Pope oversaw the signing of the Treaty of Tordesillas which drew a line, a, a, a vertical line on the globe of the earth. It passed through a point 370 leagues west of the Cape Verde Islands in the Atlantic. Everything to the west of that line was ceded in trading terms to Spain. Everything to the east of that line was ceded in trading terms to Portugal. I mean, you imagine the audacity of it. You know, they, they, de- they decide between them, between the rulers of Spain and the rulers of Portugal and the Pope, they decide to split the world between themselves. It's really, it's extraordinary. And it, you know, it, it's right in there at the root of all evil. You know, this is, the way, this is the way people invite themselves to think when they think they've got the upper hand. Um, and of course the Pope was on board. When has the, the Vatican ever turned its nose up at the opportunity for a share of the cash so it was hardly it was hardly surprising that the, that the pope was happy to get involved because you know there was there's a there's a cut going their way as well so anyway so that was signed in 14 
94, as I say, just two years after Columbus had, well, in inverted commas, discovered the American continents. But here's the thing. The Reformation swept across Europe in the 16th century, in the, you know, in the early part of the 16th century, that tsunami wave of Protestantism upended Catholicism in, in so many ways. And one thing that happened was, after the Reformation had begun to unfold, the Protestant states, the newly Protestant states of Europe, uh, looked at the Treaty of Tordesillas and said, you can forget that. It, they decided it didn't have any bearing on their, on their behaviour uh, whatsoever. The world was in flux in the 16th century on religious grounds. Anyway, so there's a bit of background. The Spanish conquistador Hernán Cortés, he had gone into the kingdom of the Aztecs in top of South America um, and eviscerated it. I suppose, you know, you might say it mirrored the way in which the Aztecs had been eviscerating their victims. You know, that whole dreadful culture of splitting people open and tearing out their living hearts and all of the rest of it, that bloodthirsty cult come religion come understanding of the cosmos. So they had been opening up people and, and, and taking out their beating hearts and Hernan Cortes turned up and more or less did the same thing to their civilization. The, the Aztecs had been scuppered, they had been holed below the waterline in, some, in no small way by their own creation myth. They believed, they had told themselves from their beginning that they were the work of a pale bearded god who had come from the sea and and had created the Aztec world. And on departure, after the work of creation, this pale bearded god had said that he would be back. Look out for me, sort of style. You know, all these creation myths have someone who, who, who goes away on the promise of returning. And so when Hernan Cortes turned up, a bit paler than the locals and bearded, there was a general suspicion that it was the the myth coming to pass, that the, their god had come back. So it was a contributory factor in what rattled the Aztecs right down to their foundations and you know led to their undoing. Obviously, they were much more undone by disease, it would appear. Uh, the Europeans, apart from coming in with a view to conquering, but there were only a few thousand men to begin with and realistically taken over an entire continent wouldn't have made sense you would have thought but they had superior tactics the Spanish coming in and also they brought disease which took its dreadful toll over the longer term so they brought diseases from the old world which had not been known in the new world and so the people there had no immunity to things like diphtheria chickenpox flu measles yellow fever uh, things that in the old world, people had acquired some immunity to. We just swept through the Americas, uh, and and well, it's, it's very difficult. But I mean, sometimes you'll read that as much as ninety percent of the indigenous population died of disease. So there was a terrible undoing of of the Americas by the arrival of the Europeans. In fifteen thirty one, Francisco Pizarro invaded Peru, and captured and held to ransom their last emperor. Atahualpa demanded a ransom in gold. They set aside a room and said, right, if you want Atahualpa back, you'll have to fill that room with gold. 
which the Incas duly did, the amount of gold that was piled up in the room was, well, it was a million pesos in value. Uh, but So even though they had met their side of the deal, Pizarro had Atahualpa executed anyway, actually garroted, actually throttled with a, a, you know, a cord around his neck, tightened with a, a stick being twisted in it until he breathed no more. Uh, so, I mean, it, it's so ugly. As I say, when there's gold in prospect for people, the people with the sharpest appetite for gold are prepared to do the most appalling things and to turn a blind eye to other appalling things that happen in their shadow. So what started basically coming out of the Americas and going back across the Atlantic in ships and into Europe was a river of gold and silver, a source of wealth beyond imagining. And it destabled the money markets of Europe. You know, because if you imagine a financial system that's kind of uh, contained within itself and wealth is, is being exchanged, when you suddenly flood it with a whole new river of gold and silver, it changes everything. So it was, it was quite chaotic in the financial markets. And then in 1545, I mentioned that date at the top, in 1545, an indigenous guy who was employed by the Spanish to go looking for sources of wealth uh, in what we would know as Bolivia, he found a mountain of silver called Potosi. I mean, it's not, it's not like a shining heap of solid silver. It's that it was, it was silver occurring in its geological association with other metals from which it had to be uh, distilled, purified. But nonetheless, uh, this mountain in, in Potosi, in Bolivia, was, was silver from top to bottom. The whole thing, it was a whole, it was a whole edifice of silver. silver just, the silver ore just running through it. Uh, and so you can imagine, imagine what that meant as the Spanish began to salivate at the potential of this. And Potosi became a boom town. First of all, there were hundreds, then there were thousands, then tens of thousands, and eventually hundreds of thousands of people were pulled in to work, to mine it, to burrow into it, to get their hands on the silver. They called it Kerorico, the rich mountain. That was the name that they applied to it, Kerorico. And by the second half of the 16th century, so Diego Gualpa finds this thing in 1545, for the next decades, 1550s, 60s, 70s, 80s, the output from Potosi was two-thirds of all the silver mined anywhere in the world. For 50-odd years, two-thirds of all the new silver that was coming out of the ground anywhere was coming out of Kerorico at Potosi in Bolivia. So if the money markets of Europe had already been a bit thrown by the arrival of the first gold, you can imagine what this river... 16,000 tonnes of Potosi silver had come out of that location by 1650. Okay, so within a hundred years, 16,000 tonnes of previously non-existing silver was circulating in Europe. So you can imagine what that did. There was, there was even an expression that was coined around that time, which was valer un potosi, which means worth a potosi. So if people were talking about something enormously valuable, they would say Valeron Potosi, worth a Potosi. In fact, Cervantes used the term in Don Quixote, his great novel. 
it was common parlance to imagine that anything that you had to uh, contemplate as being a source of unimaginable wealth was on Potosi. There we have the love of money being the root of all evil because while some people were getting rich, and it's always just a few, really, it was the making of a hell on earth for the people of the hinterland of Kero Rico. Some people were getting rich, but most people were being destroyed. The Europeans, when they arrived in amongst the Inca, had been made aware of a, a, a system whereby the majority of the locals, the poor, the mass of the people, owed labour to the narrow clique above them. It was called Mita, Mita, and it, it meant that in return for being allowed to exist on the land, they had to spend some of the time working for the aristocrats above them. They just owed them the sweat of their brows and the strength of their backs. And when the Spanish arrived in the same territory, they latched onto this and began exploiting the same system, in no small part because it mirrored for them a system that they had employed back home called encomienda. Uh, encomienda had come in during the time of the Reconquista, when the when the Christian Spanish were removing and and and, and deposing and ev- and evicting the Muslim Moors. So as they as they regained control of the, the territories, where a Muslim population was left on the land, they were captured by encomienda. And encomienda was a system whereby an individual was given a territory and all of the villages and all of the people within that territory notionally in return for the protection of the aristocrat they owed him labour. It's protection money except that rather than money they had to provide their their own labour. So because the Spanish were already employing a system encomienda in the old country when they went into the territory of the Inca and heard about Mita the same idea that the, the peasants owed the, the rich man work. They just saw that, ah, right, we can, you know, we can, we can take advantage of this. And what it, what it meant was that the, the people living in anywhere near Potosi, Kerorico, were just exploited as slaves by the Spanish aristocrats who, by royal command of the, of the King of Spain, King Charles, were given these territories and they could run them like little petty kingdoms, which is what they did. Imagine the scene, you know, Potosi is now, Kerorico is now this hell of, of people. You can imagine some m- mound in the landscape that's just covered with ants, but, but when you look closer, the ants are people who, who are just being made to crawl all over it and to burrow inside it. You know, the shafts and whatever have been opened up into it to get to the, you know, to get to the silver. One Spanish observer, Domingo de Santo Tomas, wrote, quote, To the complete perdition of this land, there was discovered a mouth of hell, into which a great mass of people enter every year and are sacrificed by the greed of the Spaniards. Another writer, Rodrigo de Luisa, so they're the Spanish themselves, you know, they, they, some of their number know fine well what's happening and that it's wrong. He describes the mining work in detail, quote, The Indians, which is to say the indigenous people, enter these infernal pits by some leather ropes like staircases. Once inside, 
They spend the whole week in there, without emerging, working with tallow candles. They are in great danger inside there. If 20 healthy Indians enter on Monday, half may emerge crippled on Saturday. So these people are just being emptied into the mine as though they matter not a jot. They're just cogs. They've gone from being human beings with lives and aspirations to cogs in a hellish machine designed for one thing and one thing only, which is to get silver out of the ground that the Spaniards can then take back to Spain. So the mines were lethally dangerous. Collapses and and, and, all of the rest of the things that you would associate with burrowing underground. But once the ore was on the surface, it had to be processed to get the silver out of it. That process used enormous amounts of mercury. Mercury is toxic in the extreme. And so if they weren't being killed by the collapses and falls and all of the rest of the things that happen underground... They were being poisoned to death by the, you know, by the extraction process. You have to think that in 1492, Christopher Columbus, on this kind of quixotic endeavour to find a way to the east and to the Spice Islands, and he, by accident, discovers, for, from the European perspective, this vast territory that we know as the Americas. And within a lifetime... They're just raping the place. The people that follow in his train are just raping the place. People are dying in the thousands, in the in the hundreds of thousands, in the millions. And all all that anybody cares about is getting the gold and the silver in which that place is naturally rich and shipping it back across the Atlantic. It's so depressing to to contemplate that that is, that is what we're like. That is what our species is is up to when it gets the opportunity it's so it's so shatteringly shaming i would say the spanish operations were really confined in in, in every way that mattered to well what they called new spain which is the territory we call mexico also to peru and to some of the islands of the caribbean but having said that the shadow of their hand was over the whole was over the whole continent, and the misery that came in the train was spread far and wide. King Charles of Spain, he liked to, you know, upon, you know, for whom the, you know, his empire was so great that the sun never set upon it. He liked to imagine that he was running the whole empire directly, but of course he wasn't because the state capacity was not there. What was happening on the other side of the Atlantic you know, it was, it was, might as well have been happening on the moon, for all of the practical influence that he was able to have on it on a day-to-day basis. It was really being run by governors that he was appointing. And it was understood that they could do and did do whatever they wanted with the people, with whatever they wanted, as long as that river of silver and gold and also tobacco and sugar kept flowing back across the Atlantic. I mentioned the feudalism of encomienda, whereby a crown-appointed aristocrat would be given a territory, given command of a territory, And automatically, overnight, in that moment, all of the people living there, the indigenous population, owed that aristocrat their their labour, their strength that he could employ, which was was slavery by any other name, really. And Encomienda actually explains why a distinct difference between the societies that developed in South America compared to the societies that developed in North America. Encomienda 
this feudalism, this idea of a, of a dictatorship by one person over the mass of the population, it has its consequences in what has happened in modern South America. The dictatorships and that feudal exploitation of people right up into the modern era was a consequence of encomienda, where in the north, by contrast, by way of a contrast, where the primarily Protestant states came in and established colonies, where the rights of the individual were kind of notionally respected, the right to property, the right to representation in a court of law, the rule of law. I mean, there's, there's exploitation and corruption everywhere. However, because of those basic principles, that's why you end up with the United States of America, into which, for generations and right up to the present day, people in South America want into. They want away from the consequences of encomienda, and they want into the North, where the rights of the individual and the rule of law created a different set of civilizations. So, you know, there's a profound difference. In many ways, you cannot get away from the fact that the destiny of South America and Central America would have been also different if the Spanish had only introduced horses, which is one of the things they did, which was beneficial. If they had just called it quits at horses, then the world might have been altogether different for South America. A place that seems less like a country and more like a state of mind, spanning two continents and 11 time zones, it's the biggest country in the world, twice the size of China or the United States of America. Ivan the Terrible expanded its territory exponentially. Key to the successful control of this vast landmass was a centre of gravity, made of strong leaders wielding power with the pull of a black hole. Next time, in my love letter to the world. To help support this podcast and to get access to new and exclusive history and comment vodcasts every week, sign up to my Neil Oliver Patreon site. I'd love to see you there. Check out the Instagram account called Neil Oliver Love Letter. My YouTube channel, simply called The Neil Oliver Channel. And to help build this podcast, please tell your friends about it. Get them listening and write a review to convince the online crowd to join us. For further reading about these moments in time, you could try my book. It's called The Story of the World in 100 Moments and it's published by Transworld. Neil Oliver's Love Letter to the World is produced by Paul Ratcliffe and Neil Oliver for Catnip Inc. Music's composed by Milo McKinnon. Social media and YouTube producer is Oscar CFR. Additional research is by Evie, Lucian, Archie and Teddy. Finance is by Catherine and Trudy. Post-production is by Althorpe Studios and the graphics are by Paul Plowman. Thanks for listening. This has been a Catnip Inc. Podcasts production. <laughs>